Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, Joseph T. Buckingham, editor of the Boston Courier in the 1830s, had a way with invective. The mere fungus of an offensive plant which one cannot touch without an immediate application of soap and water, with an infusion of eau de cologne to sweeten the hand. O ye caters of luxuries, ye gods and goddesses of the science of cookery, deliver us from tomatoes. You have to wonder what he said about politicians. Well, everything has a history, as we've said on the podcast before, and that includes tomatoes. For when Buckingham wrote his anti-tomato diatribe, not very coincidentally, the United States was in the midst of a tomato-eating health craze that included, for some, the consumption of life-enhancing tomato pills, while in that very year, Italians persisted in eating pasta that had been cooked in broth for as much as an hour before being tossed with pork lard and eaten mostly by hand. These and other excellent facts are found in William Alexander's Ten Tomatoes That Changed the World, A History. His previous books include The $64 Tomato, How One Man Nearly Lost His Sanity, Spent a Fortune, and endured an existential crisis in the quest for the perfect garden. Bill Alexander, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Hal. Nice to be with you. Did you get that? So this is uh, a book. Yeah, I did. I did. Sorry. <laughs> um, so this is a book that. Uh, so this is a book that I um, I knew I wanted to talk about when I first saw it, and yet found it as we'll see. I found it strangely autobiographical since a lot of it is set in South Jersey where I grew up and very few things are. But let's start with the really important questions. Is a tomato a vegetable or a fruit? And what does the Supreme Court have to say about this? Vegetable or fruit, tomato or tomato, certainly tomato has had its share of identity crises over the years. Um, so the roots of this particular problem go back uh, actually prior to the Civil War, um, when tomatoes, after um, a rather slow start, had become so popular in the North that wholesalers had uh, contracted with uh, growers in Virginia, Maryland, to bring in early and late season uh, uh, tomatoes. Um, That obviously was disrupted by the the Civil War, which I guess today we might call a supply chain problem. Um, and after the war, as the post-war South, South re, rebuilt, uh, Southern farmers wanted their, 
business back. Um, in the meantime, the northern growers had started to get their off-season fruits, vegetables from uh, the Bahamas, Ber Bermuda. Um, and so the southern growers lobbied and got in 1883 a tariff passed on all imported vegetables. And several years later, uh, John Nix, who's New York uh, fruit and, and vegetable uh, Im import company, was one of the largest in the United States, professed to be shocked, shocked when Edward Hedden, who was the collector of the port of New, New York, informed him that under the new Tariff Act, he'd have to pay a 10% duty on tomatoes. Uh, Nix paid the tariff under pro protest, claiming that he should not have to pay because botanically the tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. Uh, in 1893, the case of Nix versus Hedden finally reached the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court, which now found itself in the position of having to rule whether the tomato was a fruit or a, 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 a vegetable. Um, oddly, this was uh, one of two cases in which Hedden was a de defendant uh, in that same term. Uh, the other being kind of a similar case of what constituted finished furniture, I guess we would call it today, um, un unassembled or assembled furniture, which might be how, uh, I guess, I, I, Ikea got its start uh, by, um, you could avoid that the duty if you left the, the legs off mm -hmm. the table. So anyway, this, uh, this case reached the, uh, reached the court. Uh, this turned into not Nick's versus Hedden, but the tomato versus Webster's uh, had uh, Nick started out having his uh, counsel read uh, definitions of fruit, vegetable, and and tomato from uh, Web Webster's. Hedden's counsel came came back and read definitions of pea, egg, eggplant, cucumber, squash, and pepper. And the argument was that if um, you were the court were to rule that the tomato was a fruit, it would have to put all these other time honored uh, vegetables into the same basket. And he he did have a point. Uh, a dictionary, uh, you know, defined, uh, for example, eggplant as a plant allied to the tomato and bearing a large, smooth fruit. Uh, Nix's counsel came. Came back and uh, read how Webster's uh, defined potato, turnip, cauliflower, and said, well, the tomato is nothing like those. Uh, finally, to the relief of all parties, um, both sides rested. And in the end, the court uh, finally ruled that, um, that the tomato... Uh, was, um, even though it was botanically a fruit because it was eaten as part of the main course with or after the soup and the meats or the fish, not as dessert, that it was indeed 
uh, should be treated as vegetable, not a fruit. Well, thank God that settled it. What are the origins of the tomato? Is this like, is this another product of sort of the Central American, you know, biosphere, which like is the gift that keeps on giving, I guess, as far as humans. Yeah, are it's, I guess it's more the South, uh, South, South American, American. Bi- biosphere. Uh, the, the, the first ones, the, the, uh, the, the, the ancestors of it, which are called the current tomato or the pimp tomato are found in the coastal highlands of um, uh, Peru, hmm. Ecuador. Um, it doesn't seem that the, the, the residents of those places did much with them. Really? Um, they don't seem to have uh, either eaten them, cultivated them. Um, and probably at least 500 years or maybe even uh, a thousand years uh, before the, the Spaniards had arrived in Mexico, the, um, the Az- Aztecs uh, were breeding them. And the Aztecs, Aztecs markets, but it's hard to say, mm. were just full of all types of tomatoes. Um, they came in yellow, they came in red, um, and there would be baskets of them. Um, and they were used in, uh, you know, chop, chopped up the way uh, they might be done today for salsa, chopped up chilies. Mm-hmm. Onions, they were used to flavor soups and stews. Um, in fact, um, I guess in what you might think of as being the first recipe for Spanish uh, tomato uh, stew, uh, on the eve of battle, a, con- conquist- a conquistador uh, reported uh, detecting the disconcerting aroma of bubbling tomatoes coming from the enemy camp speculating that perhaps he was the missing ingredient. Yeah. <laughs> it's Pernaltias. I think before the Battle of Kalu or something like that, he's, he, they alleged yeah. that the, the chili pots had already been prepared. Uh, yeah. So um, so these t- tomatoes then, uh, have you eaten some sort of like, uh, there's so many attempts to like recreate, you know, original flavors and things. So what's like the oldest varietal variety of t- tomato that you've sampled and how different is it from say a, a modern taste so it's it's very hard to get back to the really old ones because you know unlike some seeds that they found like in you know egyptian tombs sure. that you, yeah. you can still put in a pot of soil and grow uh uh t- tomato seeds are viable for only about 10 years oh really um now, if you go into the wilds of Mexico, if you go down the Andes, which people are still doing because they're still trying to bring back some of the DNA of some of those old, old ones, um, you can get a notion. Um, the oldest one I was able to taste was a, um, a Mexican um, species that was um, ribbed, which is what the first tomatoes were. The, they looked uh, more like it in uh, an acorn squash mm-hmm. than a uh, regular round, smooth uh, tomato. Um, 
And I expected it to be like it was. It was uh, found in Mexico, like in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, I expected it to be like you know bitter and really acidic, and I, I was shocked. It was really quite quite good. Um, that being said, there's there's no doubt that the um, the fruits of your um, were were not nearly as as sweet as the ones mm-hmm. today. I mean, tomatoes today have really been bred for our our sweet tooth, as have you know every, pretty much anything every, you can name. Strawberries, yeah. apples are so much yeah. sweeter. I mean, as I heard people. someone point out recently, Brussels sprouts have recently been bred so that they taste you know less Brussels sproutsy. I mean, they don't taste the way they right. did 30 years ago. Uh, everything has been made sweeter. So, so really, the, the the strongest clues we can get about what they were like is really in in art. We really mm. can't taste them. We can we can see what they what they looked like, and we can go by um, you know some uh, con- contemporary uh, accounts like the one that you you opened with, where they they smelled terrible. Um, and they were not not popular at all, right? At, at first, they were so strange. You know, yeah. if you if you think about tomatoes versus pretty much any other vegetable you can think of, they're really strange. You know, they're they're mushy. They go from you know green to overripe in in no no time. Yeah, and uh, and a field of rotting tomatoes is one of the least appealing smells that I can think of. I mean, it's worse, uh, worse than a sewage plant and I've smelled them both. Uh, it's, it's, it's got a powerful r- stank that's unlike anything else. Yeah, for sure. And one of the odd things about tomato is that it's, it's the only plant I can think of whose leaves actually smell like the fruit. Yeah. So true. if you, if you brush up against the, the leaves, you kind of get that, and in fact, some some chefs will um, will put into their stock a couple of tomato leaves to try to enhance the. Uh, That's what I could do with the sucker. Flavor. That's what I can do when I remove suckers. I guess I can just t- toss them in the uh, in, a, in the stock mm-hmm. pot. Um, and just don't put too many in. Yeah. they are poisonous in large quantities. <laughs> okay, um, you talk with the the food scientist Harold McGee uh, at one point in the book about what gives it its sort of special flavor. So very briefly, briskly. Uh, what it, what is it about the tomato that gives it its its sort of its its special flavor? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think Harold really kind of nailed it. He said, you know, most most fruits will or most foods will give you a taste along one axis or two. Yeah, and the tomato hits several of them, uh, and it has a balance. He says so it you know it manages to be sweet but not too sweet, tart, but not too tart. It's fruity, but it's also savory at, at the same time. Um, it just brings a lot of different flavors to you. Um, and tomatoes are also very high in glutamates, which is the, com- the compound that... Um, uh, awakens the sensory receptors on the tongue Mm -hmm. that we call umami, which Mm -hmm. is the the last one to be recognized in addition to, you know, the usual salt, sweet, uh, sour. Um, 
and it, it's probably the hardest one. It's the, it's that savory taste, and I kind of think of it as the kind of the satisfying taste of a bowl of chicken soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a fruit, uh, tomatoes are uncommonly high in glutamates, um, which might be why they're eaten as vegetable, um, because even when it's sweet, mm-hmm. even when you you know you get a bite of a really sweet tomato. It still retains savory character. Mm-hmm. Well, despite the wonderful taste characteristics of the tomato, when it arrives in Europe, um, it is not well received. And you blame Galen, uh, Claudius Galenus, who, curious enough, is born in 129 AD. So uh, he wasn't around to to greet the tomato and stamp and stamp a sort of disapproval on it. So what does Galen, why blame Galen for the, uh, you know, for shunning the imported tomato? Yeah. uh, Because uh, oddly enough, the Renaissance, while it pulled Europe out of the dark, the dark ages probably plunged tomato into about a 300 year old dark, dark age of its, of its own. Now we all know that the, the 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 Renaissance was all about uncovering, you know, ancient art and uh, digging up statues and and so on. But um, the the Renaissance people also went back and and unearthed and revived ancient texts, including medical texts, and that included the writings of uh, Galen of Pergamum. And Galen was kind of like, um, uh, he was maybe the first like uh, celebrity doctor. Mm-hmm. He was like doctors Oz, Spock, and all all rolled in, into one. He was the doctor to the emperors. And he had an interesting di- 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 uh, dietary theory. Um, now, at, at that time, it was thought that health was controlled by the humors of the of the body um the humors being things like bile and 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 blood and phlegm and those had to be kept in in a balance and the way that one did that was to um was to eat foods that had a proper balance of hot and cold and wet and dry so Mm -hmm. galen classified all foods you can think of it kind of as a as a to a two-way grid with um on on the on one axis you've got uh going from um hot to cold on the other axis dry to wet and so some some foods might be hot and um wet and other foods might be cold and dry Uh, tomatoes did not fare well they ended up way out in right field in the cold and wet, the unhealthiest uh, part of his chart, uh, you know, kind of like a wet base basement. <laughs> so they were considered unhealthy. Um, some people thought they were poisonous, and the most common thing you will read today, if you if you just hop on the on the web and you say, "Well, wh- why were why were they not eaten for three three hundred years?" you'll probably read something like, well, they were thought to be uh, poisonous. Um, I don't buy into that um, because um, they were thought to be 
if they were thought to be poisonous, it's because they were relatives of the night the nightshade, which includes such really poisonous things as belladonna. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Europeans were happily eating other nightshades, such as eggplant and peppers. Um, so I, I think it was more that they were thought to be un, unhealthy uh, rather than to be poisonous. Um, our friend Galen also had another uh, contribution to the un, unpopularity unpop, of it. Uh, a lot of people believed it to be something called Galen's wolf pe- uh, peach. <laughs> and the wolf peach was this mythical poisonous fruit that Galen had writ- written about, which had a s- strong smelling yellow juice and a ribbed appearance, which happens to perfectly fit description of the 16th century tomatoes in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and oddly enough, that that, that that connection still lives on today in the, the 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 scientific name for the tomato, which is Solanum lycopersicum, and lycopersicum meaning wolf peach. Huh. That's where lycopene um, comes from. I get, is that right? Or is yeah. It? Okay. Um, so there's 300 years of this sort of the the tomato is in be, is in bad repute, and then suddenly in the 1830s. There's the uh, we touched on this already. The there's a tomato craze. Um, this is what Joseph Buckingham's writing about in sort of response, uh, response pushing back against. Uh, everyone's eating tomatoes. They're eating tomatoes with maple sugar or preserved in maple. I mean, it's a, the list is endless. So how did particularly well, how did Americans and also Europeans get to the point where suddenly this the wolf peach was okay? In fact, not just okay, right. but like was essential for your physical well-being. Um, it's, a, it's a great age, as you say, of health fads, the Graham cracker, Sylvester Graham and his diet, Oberlin College uh, firing a professor because he used pepper in the dining hall, things like that. Uh, people right. are obsessed with diet. How did the tomato co- become part of that obsession? Well, the the first thing is that it almost certainly had a evolved over the years so it probably wasn't the exact tomato that it was when it first came mexico um and um in italy the the reason the tomato didn't die out altogether is that italians said oh this is a pretty plant and they planted them uh, in their gardens as or ornamentals and <laughs> window boxes, and the tomato continued to mu- to mu- mutate over those those hundreds of years. Many of those came back to the United States. There's been a tremendous amount of travel back and forth across the Atlantic, um, the tomato, and we maybe get into that a little yeah. later. But um, in the in the north, uh, as you said, uh, tomatoes were not popular at all. They seem very strange. Um, but the 19th, the 1830s rather, was a very anxious time uh, health-wise in America. Uh, cholera had reached uh, American shores. Sure. Um, and you had people like you mentioned, Graham, uh, who invented the Graham cracker as a, a whole wheat health, health food. Uh, he also opened up these dorms where men and women could uh, eat healthy foods and even bathe several times a week. Imagine that. 
Um, and, uh, and things really happened uh, possibly as a result of a single lecture that I think the, the country was primed for it, but a, uh, a doctor named John Cook Bennett, who was kind of a failed doctor, he had been uh, kicked out of one medical school uh, and then started uh, his own. And in 1834, he published a lecture he had given to his medical students on the health benefits of tomatoes. And his claims that that this this vegetable, which is still quite unpopular, would prevent all kinds of stomach and intestinal ailments, was accepted uncritically by the by the press. And uh, his lecture appeared in over 200 new newspapers in the United States. And before you knew, to, uh, to, knew it, tomatoes were being served, you know, sometimes, as you said, for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, and um, magazines then started to publish recipes because no one knew what to do with them. You know, there weren't many, there weren't many cook, cookbooks that even mentioned them. Um, and then what I think is a very American thing happened. An Ohio merchant named Archibald Miles, who had been uh, pe- peddling this worthless patent medicine that he called American hy- hygiene pills, ran into the good doctor, Bennett. And Bennett said, you know, the country is going wild of tomatoes. You should change the name of your of your pills. Take advantage <laughs> of that. So Miles printed up new labels, awarded himself a medical degree, and what uh, became uh, known now as Doctor Miles Compound Extract of Tomatoes appeared on the market in 1837, and sales shot up overnight. And he claimed that his pills could cure everything from upset stomach to cholera to sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, it, it just was nothing that it, that it wouldn't uh, wouldn't cure. Uh, of course, he didn't have the market to himself for long. Uh, a Connecticut doctor who actually was a doctor started up uh, Dr. Phelps's compound tomato pills. And um, the great tomato wars of the 1830s, tomato pill wars of the 1830s started. Um, I, I, feel the stu- pills- I feel stupid for asking this, but did either of these pills have anything related to the tomato actually in them? It's unclear. Uh, Miles uh, said to Phelps that his pills couldn't possibly have, have any because it would take the entire crop of the, of the state of Connecticut to supply enough. Uh, and, um, and he actually obtained some in, invoices from Phelps and found that of all the things that were going into those pills, tomatoes were not listed. <laughs> what, what both pills probably had in common, they claimed to act on the liver and the liver was considered to be like a real source of of health back then they probably kicked in a little lower they were really both essentially laxatives mm-hmm. yeah um yeah 
Um, so this is this gets us to a, a, an essential question, which several uh, Patreon members of the podcast have, have asked. Um, and this is the Salem, New Jersey versus Reynoldsburg, Ohio uh, contention. <laughs> and I, I, I swear to listeners that when I opened this book, I had no idea there'd be so much South Jersey in the book. Um, it seems like several chapters, several sort of incidents in the history of the tomato in America take place within about 20 miles of where I grew up. It's very strange. And uh, one of the legends that you demolish um, is the story of Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson of Salem, who I believe I remember someone comparing him to sort of Neil Armstrong, uh, just as Neil Armstrong landed on a new unknown world, a long scene, but no, no one had touched it. Robert Gibbon Johnson had picked a tomato out of a basket and eaten it in front of a crowd. But that... As I suspected, this is all that's all nonsense. Um, but then but then but but angry Ohioans insist no, no, it happened in Reynoldsburg. That's where the first tomato was eaten in America. Well, things happened in both places, and <laughs> I would say important things happened in, in both places. So let's start with uh, with the colonel, Robert Kippers Johnson. And yes, the legend is that in 1930 he uh, he stood on the steps. Uh, 1830. Thank you. He stood on the steps of the uh, the Salem court, courthouse in front of a huge crowd. Uh, in later versions of the story, they had come from hundreds of miles around by by ferries. Uh, a band had come to play a funeral dirge, and he ate an entire bucket of I guess what we have to call Jersey tomatoes in front of this fainting and shocked crowd to prove to everyone. Um, that they were not only safe to eat, but tasty. Um, so the origin of the story, as, <laughs> as best as we can make out, is, uh, is that in, in the uh, 1908 Salem County hand, Handbook, just mentioned in passing that Colonel Johnson brought the first tomatoes to Salem. That's pretty much all he said. That seems like a reasonable claim. Um, and then in a 1937 history of Salem, uh, the town's po postmaster, who later had a flea town for possibly embezzling funds, um, Joseph Sickler wrote his own history. Uh, his history in which he he repeated the first claim and then add that uh, he educated the natives as to its qualities, showing that it was edible and nutritious. Right, still not too bad. But then three years after that, in a, a book called The Delaware, another writer added the courthouse to this. <laughs> so now we have the, the courthouse. And and use the phrase "dared to eat a tomato publicly on the courthouse steps," to caution South Jersey that the cautious South Jersey people would accept is edible. Um, then nine years later, another writer, Stuart Hol Holbrook, in writing a book called "The Lost Men of American History," wrote that. Johnson stood on the courthouse steps in Salem and announced in stentorian tones he would then and there eat one of the lethal things. This he did with dripping relish while the gaping crowd waited to see him writhe. 
then fall frothing to the ground. Other writers picked that up and further embellished that, one of them being Sickler, who wrote the earlier version, a very modest one, but now added all the embellishments taken from his version (laughs) to his own version. And then you have, in uh, 1948, the old radio show, this CBS show, You Are There, um, which uh, some of us may remember as a TV show where Walter Cronkite was the was the host. They reenacted this scene on the court the courthouse steps. And that must be how how it really got out was the radio show. I mean, because I mean, uh, yes, contemporary audiences we can't contemporary listeners we can't we have a hard time believing how many people listened to the radio at the time and and how many people were reached by that one broadcast. I mean, it's tens and tens of millions. Yes, and and this show was treated not as entertainment. It was really treated as history to the point where newspapers the next day Mm -hmm. would cover the the show. Um, And so the town picked it up. They uh, started a Robert Given Johnson Day uh, and Good Morning America covered that. So now you've got even a wider... Audience. I, I don't ever recall. I mean, I grew up 12 miles from Salem Courthouse. I don't ever recall Robert Gibbon Johnson Day being celebrated. I don't, I don't know when they there stopped. Were only, well, there were only a few of them, but you'll be happy to know that this year they oh. started it again. They started it anew. I'm sorry. I missed it. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, it's it's totally absurd because we know that Thomas Jefferson was serving tomatoes in, in Vir- Virginia in like 1812 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, tomatoes were certainly eating, were being eaten much, much earlier. Um, and they were eaten in the, in the South well before they were eaten in the North, probably the result of um, slave, uh, slave cooks that had encountered them, the Carib- Caribbean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh Brought them north and Before, cooked them for the for the household. We'll get right back to South Jersey because the the mm-hmm. probably the Robert Gibbon Johnson myth was reflecting sort of you know boosterish uh, realities of nineteen teens and twenties and thirties South. They certainly was reflecting the importance of tomato in South Jersey in the early part of the twentieth century. Um, but what about Reynoldsburg, Ohio? Where what's what's the, what's the story there? What's who, who's the contender for that? So yeah, so this is this is later in the century. I knew it. it. Um, But a gentleman called uh, Alexander Livingston uh, was born in 1822 in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. Um, Started out in the seed business um, and decided that the real money would be in breeding his uh, his his own seeds. Mm -hmm. And um, like many of us, just became fascinated with tomatoes. Uh, So he became one of the uh, top breeders of his of his day. Now, the breeding in the 1800s was obviously quite different than it is today. and uh, actually, Mendel was born uh, about two months er- earlier than him. And so no one yet knew really about you know, the laws 
genetics and inheritance. Um, but people did know that you could try to make hybrid hybrid plants, that you could take the pollen from one plant and you could from one flower and you could fertilize a different tomato plant. And Livingston tried this for, for years and, and actually got some very good uh, tomatoes out of it. But what drove him absolutely mad was that then the seeds from those tomatoes, those early hybrid tomatoes, would not, would not grow true. Uh, as anyone who has bought a packet of, of hybrid seeds knows. Um, they didn't know why yet. It would take Mendel to explain why that, why that is. So uh, Livingston gave up on that after 15 years. He was a very patient man and went back to breeding by artificial selection which is simply that you plant thousands and thousands of plants in a field. And because tomatoes are particularly prone to mutation, uh, you look for those that have better qualities uh, than the others. Maybe they, um, they give fruit earlier or they're resistant to disease or the drought re resistance. And then um, you take those fruits and you further breed those fruits. So the way it was done in, in those days, though, was that you would look at a particular fruit on a plant. So if, if Livingston found one, one tomato that ripened before all the others on that plant, he would pick that tomato, take those seeds, and then further grow those seeds. Well, what he didn't know was that all of the tomatoes on a given plant are biologically, genetically identical. Yeah. And uh, as 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 one breeder said to me, you know, it's like um, it's like trying to uh, have your your daughter breed your grandchildren rather than your son because she started walking a few months earlier you know it's got <laughs> nothing to do with it um so one day he was he was out in the field and he had this brain brainstorm and he said oh rather than selecting individual fruits i should select individual plants and so he started looking at the at the plants and uh and I say he planted, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of plants. And then he found one day that had a smoother skin, more evenly shaped fruits, uh, unlike the ridged or lumpy tomatoes that uh, were the, the, um, the most common ones. And so he cultivated that plant and then he took the fruits from that, cultivated again. And he eventually, in 1870, came up with the Livingston Paragon tomato, which he called the first perfectly and uniformly smooth tomato ever introduced to the American public or to the, to the world. Uh, in addition to being smooth, it uh, was, as they say, a good cropper, produced well, and produced late into the into the season when market prices are are higher. But its main asset 
which we're still paying for today and the tomatoes that 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 we buy its main asset was it was gorgeous mm -hmm. it looked good and in fact if you look at his original seed catalog in the description doesn't even mention flavor he <laughs> just talks about the appearance it wasn't ribbed which i i would maintain kind of set us onto that path yeah. of what would become the supermarket tomato the tasteless but gorgeous looking perfect supermarket tomato so, so livingston went on to breed another fif 15 um and his plants uh, were uh, widely planted throughout the United States. Um, w w one of his, which we call the Marvel, was later uh, bred with another variety, became the, the Mar Globe, which became the standard um, for what a tomato should look and kind of feel and taste taste like it was tomato that um when breeders were trying to breed tomatoes would compare all other tomatoes to well let's go back to let's go back to uh well not go back to let's go to italy um we had said earlier that uh, the italians have preserved the tomato as an ornamental plant at some point mm -hmm. they realized you can eat the things or that they taste good now i i know that this is always difficult for people to realize but there was a point when Italians were making pizza, which had no tomato sauce on it, and they're eating pasta, well, you have to describe. I already alluded to this in the introduction. Yeah. How were Italians eating pasta in sort of BT before the tomato? So the pasta goes back to like the 1200s. Um, if not earlier. It was not. It was not as some of us may have read, uh, brought to uh, Italy by Marco Polo from China. It's a damn dirty lie. Um, I just want to, you know. I would... <laughs> <laughs> well, when 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 Polo came came back, I mean, he actually wrote in his in his journals that the pasta he had seen seen in China kind of looked like lasagna. So you <laughs> knew that there was already pasta in, in Italy, Italy at yeah. that point. But the first pasta, which developed in Naples, uh, and, and Naples actually plays a very um, important role, critical role, yeah. both in tomato and in pasta. The first pasta uh, was eaten as street street food, um, and it was it was boiled uh, for a long time, often in beef beef broth. And um, I have some wonderful pictures in the in the book yeah, of yeah. men eating pasta, like you know, dangling these long strands um, above their their mouths. How yeah. you still could pick it up with your hands because it, it's eaten with the hands as street food. How how you could still how it held together after an hour of boiling? I don't know. I thought that was what it would be paced by that time, but. Um, yeah, and, and that is kind of uh, probably how the the custom of cooking it al 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 dente came, uh -huh. that it it became much much easier to eat, um, but um, it was uh, first eaten with uh, with a little lard, or if you had a couple of extra uh, lira in your in your pocket, you could sprinkle a little a little cheese on it. Um, I just want to emphasize but, lard, pork lard, as a matter of fact. And one, pork. 
one of the people that you just uh, talked to, his theory about how tomato, uh, how tomato sauce developed was because they changed pork, they changed pig breeds, and the new breeds didn't have as uh, good or as abundant lard. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, the new the new breeds of pig um, made better ham. Yeah. Made better Parma ham or pro, prosciutto. Mm-hmm. But the, the lard wasn't as good. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's when uh, uh, people in the South started looking for you know, an alternative. Um, and at that point, um, uh, tomatoes were being pre were being eaten pretty widely in the South. It was, it was peasant food though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was something you could grow a lot of, you could grow it cheaply, you could grow it really fast. Um, you can, pre- you but can, you can preserve it, uh, in the sun, the sun dried tomato. That's uh, it makes it excellent for, um, for if you're a peasant. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it was preserved also as, uh, as paste, mm-hmm. uh, tomato paste the paste uh, was... is key, the paste is key to all this mm-hmm. i mean because in a way there's a connection there between tomato paste in italy and sort of condensed uh, tomato soup in camden new jersey that the sort of it's the sort of concentrated tomatoes that eventually sort of make their way into like cuisine yeah i mean in uh in italy you know you'd have this huge harvest at the end summer and 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 so what they would do is they would make a kind of like a block a block party. Mm-hmm. All the the women would go outside and they boil a tomato down in these in these vats until it was very very thick. Spread it out onto onto boards to to dry, dry to the point where you, act, you could actually roll it up, mm-hmm. and it it would keep for ages. Um, it was called con- conserva nero or black uh, black paste, um, and it would only take like a like a uh, a, spoon, a spoonful of that to uh, season uh, soups and and foods. It was nutritious, um, and that re- that would eventually become canned paste mm-hmm. in Italy. So. The San Marzano. You have a very extended episode. We can't get into all the details about mm-hmm. this because it's a it's quite an opera uh, that you tell about the <laughs> San Marzano. But what I mean, I, I have to admit, I I I I would say, oh yeah, San Marzano, mm-hmm, yes, because I've seen the cans. I've seen San Marzano on cans. But what actually is the San Marzano, and why is it so prized as a tomato by? Italian Italian producers and also Italian marketers. Uh, well, we have to back up a little bit. So, by the time it appears, uh, tomato was already uh, Italy was already a huge tomato growing mm-hmm. nation, and uh, tomatoes were being grown up north in the Parma mm-hmm. r- region. Uh, they were being grown in south around. Naples in the area of um, which uh, goes from like Naples to Vesuvius to the uh, Amalfi Coast called Campania. Um, And tomatoes were being canned. And the problem with the tomatoes being canned in the north is that 
they were kind of watery. They didn't hold up well. Um, and they were round. And if you think about putting round things into a can, you know, how many tennis balls can you get into a can? Uh, the tomatoes in the South were already uh, something closer to like a plum shape. They were uh, elongated and they could be stacked. Uh, and so you could get many more in a, uh, in a can. So there's a Northern canner named uh, Cheerio. Um, his company had, um, had developed a new seed which was a cross of several other Southern tomatoes. And he wanted to, to know where this might grow best in Italy. So around the turn of century, um, people showed up around Campania and looked for someone to do a, a test growing of this. And it turned out that they grew really well. And they had a sweeter taste. They had a smaller core, mm -hmm. which for canned tomatoes is really important because you pretty much eat the core. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't mm -hmm. you don't take you don't take the core out. They 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 held their shape. And because the the farmer who who volunteered to um, to 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 try these, and he was. Um, he was one of the most prominent uh, farmers in the region because his farm was in San Mar Marzano. That became the name of the, 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 the tomato. It was an instant hit and all the fields were trans transformed into it. Uh, it was a hugely important ex export crop for Italy, which after the First World War was just death desperately poor we we can't imagine really today just how poor that that country was um and so to get foreign cash um was just a hugely um Im, important thing um now some of those tomatoes of course this was also the time of the great italian my and millions and millions of, uh, of Italians left Southern Italy because it was so poor and ended up in um, North and South America. Well, they brought their canned Mar Mar Marzano tomatoes with, with them, developed uh, Italian-American food here, which we think of Italian food. Most of what we think of as Italian food is not Italian food, right. Italian American food, but those tomatoes also made their way to uh, to breeders. And, um, and one of the one of the odd quirks is that the um, the Roma tomato <laughs> yeah. actually is a hybrid of the San Mar Marzano and two other uh, North American uh, breeds. Uh, and it was developed, even though it's called the Roma. It was developed outside of a different cap capital. It was on the Beltway outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, calling it the Beltway tomato probably would not have been uh, a good move. But it was it was uh, it actually was a tomato that in a way almost doomed the San Mar Marzano because it was a bushy type tomato what we call a de determinate 
tomato would reach three or four feet and stop growing, had some disease resistance. All of the fruits would ripen at about the same time. So you could send your workers into the field just once. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it became so popular that in Italy, the Roma tomato displaced the San Marzano and to the point where uh, as we got to the end of the 20th century, no one was really sure what a real San Mar- Marzano was. The, the DNA had kind of been lost. It had been interbred. And then they um, underwent a movement to try to determine what it was and to breed it and bring it back. And, 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 mar- gr- and market the hell out of it. That's not, that's and market be- the hell out of it. Getting, uh, you know, uh, a DOP uh, label on it. Let's uh, not even know, get into what that means. That, that, that goes on forever. Although the, I, I, was, I was pleased to see that also part of the contention over what DOP means and does it apply in the United States and what's a true San Marzano and the issue of, I kid you not, listeners, fake tomatoes. At the heart of it is a company based 20 miles from the Salem Courthouse where Robert Gibbon Johnson did not eat a basket of tomatoes. That's, um, that's right. Uh, Cento, which is in West Deptford in Gloucester County. And they, I looked at, you, you said this in the book, and lo and behold, you go to the website and you can use a little app to discover the field from where your tomatoes came from. Just in that's case. That's right. And they... And they, they, you know, they claim they are authentic San Marzanos. Uh, the people who uh, the run the consortium who market the DOP San Mar- Marzanos call them frauds. And um, they're the same farms. They're coming from the same farms. <laughs> and th- what happened was that Cento broke from the consortium because the consortium would not allow Cento at the point where, you know, San, San Marzano's kind of became like the it tomato. They were featured on the Food Channel and so on. And um, everyone knew them as San Mar- Mar- Marzano. But the consortium rules were that they had to be written on the can as S period. Marzano, S being the ab- abbreviation in Italy for saint. And Cento said, no one's going to know what that means. L- let, let us call them San Marzanos. And the consortium said, no. And Cento <laughs> said, well, then we're going our own way. They took half the farms with them. And it's 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 just bizarre, but the so, you know, whole so, thing is over a label. Anyone who's been part of an Italian family can understand everything that went on there. <laughs> Uh, so let's go back to briefly to South Jersey again, because we also have another, there's another even bigger South Jersey, uh, maker involved and that's the Campbell's. Um, and I can almost, I can remember the day of the headline of the local paper in the early eighties where, uh, Campbell stopped buying South Jersey tomatoes. Um, what I hadn't realized until I read your book is how much, for example, that, that, evening paper was printed in Bridgeton, New Jersey, which turns out to have been a, a hub, a, a, a hotbed of canning innovation 
and patents on cans. And so Campbell's was one of many, many, many places in South Jersey, but they were the biggest winner in how to can and market vegetables and tomatoes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, canning pretty much the United States really started in South Jersey. I had no idea. Um, as a, as a way of, Hey, it's the end of the season. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do with all of these? Which people don't realize um, until they have a garden is that yes. is how, I mean, how awful it is. I remember growing up when we, the, the tomatoes would really come in. It's the hottest part of the year. And my mom has to then can stuff or make sauce in like a South Jersey, August, it's really, you know, it's, it's kind of the worst, uh, that you have to do that. And, uh, but when you've got that bounty, what are you going to do with it? we had friends who would like throw tomatoes or throw zucchini into the driveway and drive over them, you know, and, and, and sort of a desire to be done with them. But, you know, not everyone's going to do that if they want to make money. And early early canning was a hugely labor and intensive yeah. task. Um, now they would use uh, women on a kind of an early version of an assembly line to 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 pack the cans, uh, but then you had to have a capper to mm-hmm. solder by hand <laughs> uh, a, a tin lid on each can, and then the cans had to be process boiling water also a, a highly skilled task because if you didn't boil them long enough you're going to be killing customers if you boiled them too long they turn to uh to mush so this was a real problem for the canners and because these these workers knew that their work was was rather specialized and they were in demand they kind of threw their weight around now and then and would show up for work drunk and go on strike if they didn't get what they wanted. So one of the most important uh, in 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 inventions in in canning uh, came from Br- Bridgeton, New New Jersey, a stone's throw from where you're from, from Salem. Yeah. And a gentleman named uh, J D. Cox uh, invented uh, a machine that could seal that could top six cans at at one time. Um, and then the second, uh, thing that, uh, that came was they found that by, um, by processing the cans in steam rather than in boiling water, that became a much more predictable task and something else that could be done by a less trained person. And um, the canners were not happy. Uh, the, the workers were not happy. Some of the canners had to had to carry guns. They were afraid <laughs> being killed by their workers. But it, it is amazing. I was I was as surprised as you were. What a critical role that South Jersey played in this in this whole thing. From being it was the largest tomato growing area in the entire entire United States. You know, it gave us the guy who uh, it was the first the place to uh, to can, and the and these the the uh, the, the the canneries, by the way, were right on the farms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then to add to add to that, uh, canners threw a lot of slop on the floor. The tomatoes that were too ripe or underripe or damaged and couldn't go into cans would just be like hosed down 
at the end of the of the of the shift and it occurred to someone that hmm we could take this stuff boil it down add some sugar and spices and salt and bottle this as tomato ketchup so ketchup came out of these these plants too yeah so it's that's so appetizing um let's talk very briefly about heinz ketchup um, because I just, I love this. This also was unplanned. When I opened the book, I had no idea that part of the story is friend of the podcast, Harvey Washington Wiley. The, uh, the, when you start to realize he's the ubiquitous head of the FDA or pure food or whatever that was the, the Bureau and the Department of Agriculture. So, uh, briefly how you explain why Heinz ketchup is so damn thick. This is, this is a, this is part of a regulation. It is. So ketchup, uh, as I said, uh, no, so it's a back up just a, a, a little if we can. Ketchup uh, was not new to the United States. Uh, it really was a British uh, in, in, in invention. And the first ketchups were based on, um, were made from fish or boiled down uh, wal- walnuts it's or a- mushrooms. It's mushrooms. a it's a kind of family of sauces. I guess if we're going to talk about flavors, it's umami heavy sauces like uh, it, anch- right. uh, anchovy sauce. Anchovy ketchup is basically Worcestershire sauce. Uh, there's a walnut. You talk about mushroom ketchup. I've seen all these things are very strong in, in the umami flavors to add to your whatever you're eating. Right, right. So so ketchup have had been been a while and. Uh, and so, as I said, these uh, canners uh, found a way to get rid of their slop by making a new kind of ketchup called tomato ketchup. And it was an instant hit. People loved it. Um, but not surprisingly, though, if you're going to take your floor slop <laughs> and boil it down and bottle it, it didn't have a very long shel- shelf life. I mean, the, the, it would sometimes, uh, for for ferment and the corks would blow out while still on the on the store shelves um it's bad for business so bad for business so um it needed add additives and the most popular additive was uh something called ben- benzoic acid and that's ben- where and that's where wiley gets involved and that's where wiley gets involved uh, so these tomatoes were all being made with ben- benzoic acid, and when uh, when uh, Harvey Wiley, who was uh, as your other podcast mentioned, was quite a polymath, a Latin Greek teacher, um, when he became head of the Bureau of Chemistry, uh, he became concerned about food additives. He uh, he even convened a uh, a panel of, uh, I guess, formerly healthy men uh, put them in a dorm for a week and gave them increasingly amount, increasing amounts of all the common food additives. No one made it through the benzoic acid test. Right? They all got they all got sick, burning esophagi and so on. And so Wally concluded that benzoic acids were really, as Ralph Nader might say, unsafe at any speed. And he went on this uh, this movement to uh, to to ban, ban them. This coincided with a, a pure food 
movement, a grassroots movement that was growing in the United States in the late 1800s. And you have to realize that at that point, there were no food regulations at all in the United States. I mean, anything could go into food and did. Um, you know, plaster was used to whiten milk uh, for for maldehyde to preserve Formal, it. Maldehyde to preserve milk, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, the, the gloss that came in uh, children's candies was from uh, lead. I mean, you know. Uh, and so there was this growing move uh move, movement called the pure food movement uh harvey became uh part of that started to uh campaign uh, uh both president uh teddy roosevelt and congress to ban benzoids in all foods well this would have ruined heinz heinz at this point was a hugely wealthy man one of the so-called lords of of pittsburgh with carnegie and westinghouse mellon and he was making his money on ketchup uh he had pickles and all kinds of condiments he did have the 57 flavors he had more than 57 57 varieties varieties, yeah right but uh but ketchup was a huge money maker so even while he was claiming it was safe and pro protesting, he got his chemist working to try to make a an additive free ketchup. And he wanted to himself. He said, you know, his his mother used to make ketchup, and that lasted more than a couple of days. And he said, you know, why can't the you know the company H J Heinz make ketchup? like Mrs. Hines used to make. And he went back and looked at things that she did and recipes. And he noticed there was a little more uh, sugar and vinegar uh, and that she used ripe tomatoes from the gardens. So he tried all of these things. And he also made his his factories clean enough to eat, eat, eat off the floors. He brought in uh, lacquered coated barrels, uh, he developed a ketchup bottle with a with a narrow neck and a and a screw top to replace the cork to keep the uh, the air out of, and n- nothing worked. And he was kind of in this race against time, mm-hmm. against w- Wiley, who was really you know turning the screws, and 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 Congress was getting close to uh, maybe passing some some kind of a uh, of a bill. And then he found that the key was to use perfectly ripe, not underripe, not overripe tomatoes, not floor slop. And the reason is that tomatoes have pectin. Ripe tomatoes have pectin. And pectin is not only what makes tomatoes thick when we use it today to make jams, Mm -hmm. jellies, but pectin also has natural preservative properties. And finally, in I, I think it was 1907, his chemist hit upon the perfect formula of ripe tomatoes. He also added, he increased the sugar uh, and increased the vinegar and, and all of these things. It wasn't any one thing, but all of these things uh, to, together finally gave him a bottle of ketchup that after being opened 
had a shelf life of 30 days, which is actually the shelf life of an un, un, unrefrigerated bottle of ketchup today. Mm. Um, then Heinz did interesting thing. He switched sides. Any economist would find this perfectly predictable. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and he switched sides in a big way. I mean, he went after this with, with the zeal in which he developed an additive-free tomato. He ran ads in all the women's magazines saying, you know, we have no additives. Your, your grandmother wouldn't put preservatives in your ketchup. Why should you eat preservatives? And uh, the, uh, obviously, he didn't make any friends among his colleagues there. It's a way. Um, it's uh, and this is an example of how the uh, the first well the first arrival the first arriver is able through government regulation to preserve their advantage. Uh, you know, yeah. if they if they if they do it right. Uh, well, we could talk about many other things. We could talk about Spaghettios, Chef Boyardee, who turns out to be a much more interesting guy than I thought. Um, we could and Verace Pizza Napoletana and how it's different from the pizza we know and cookbooks and we barely touched on Cosimo de Medici, but we should uh, we need to close things down. But I wanted to ask you, um, so your first book, the sixty four dollar tomato, I, I see a direct link between um, that book and this and the book that we're talk we've been talking about. Um, but I, I as I read the book, I thought about the fact is. The reason why I want to talk to you is because I find tomatoes fascinating as well. I I noted this year I bought a before I even knew I was going to talk to you I had bought some starts and I bought like some old ones like a Ramapo because I'm you know I'm from South Jersey that's what we we plant Ramapos or or a Rutgers but I also right. I also planted a Golden Oxheart which I've always wanted to try. Um, hmm. I've tried brandy wines in the past, you know, they're nice. Uh, I, I'm trying a Cherokee this, this season. Mm. Uh, um, there's, there's something about what, what makes tomatoes fascinating to you? I mean, we talked about the flavor and all the rest of it, but there's something else about it. I can't quite work it out. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, one of the things that kind of in, intrigued me is that tomatoes occupy such an odd place in our culture mm -hmm. um you know they're the most popular veg vegetable in the in the world by far I would um we we eat a billion pounds of them of fresh tomatoes we eat a billion pounds of supermarket tomatoes a year while at the same time they finish dead last in every food satisfaction survey. <laughs> you know, they kind of become the vegetable that we love to hate. People love, they prize their backyard tomatoes. Th those who don't grow them wait for the first um, appearance of tomatoes in, in farmer's markets. N nothing confers status for a backyard gardener as a, as a good crop of uh, tomatoes. Yet, at the same time... What's the vegetable you reach for if you're going to hurl something at a mm -hmm. politician or a bad actor? It's the tomato. So it's a it's a very odd thing. And you know, on 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 the one hand, it has it is a vegetable that has virtually de de defined the cuisine of an entire culture. It's given us the world's first snack food in pizza 
you know, I, I tell people, if you want to have a, a drinking game, you can safely play with your kids. Mm-hmm. Google the term pizza plus any obscure city you can think of <laughs> in the world and, and take a shot if you don't get a hit and you all stay quite sober, sober because it's, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are currently breeding uh, t- tomatoes that they think will do well on the first manned mission to Mars. So it's this hugely important vegetable. It's commercially important. It's culturally important. John Denver did a song about, you know, homegrown tomatoes. But at the same time, it's also kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield mm-hmm. vegetables. It just, you know, it gets no res- no respect. Uh, so I just found it a kind of an intriguing topic. And, and once I started working on the book, it became, you know, a hundred times more and more intriguing than I even thought I was I was getting in in into. My guest today has been William Alexander. He's the author of Ten Tomatoes That Changed the World, a history. Bill, thanks so much for talking with us today and being part of historically thinking. Oh, thank you, Al. I've I've really enjoyed the chat. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.